Colombian nationals in Queens. Federal judge orders the state to make sweeping changes to protect inmates at the Willowbrook School for the Mentally Retarded. That's the latest from the WOR Newsroom. Lester Smith reporting over WOR New York, your station for news as it happens. This little pig went down to the city hall. This little pig decided that he was going to become a newscaster. And uh, this little pig... Not yet, Bill, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Bring it up there, please. <laughs> we have uh, an eager engineer on. That's all right. Hey, this is a very important program tonight because we are dealing with the subjects which could, well, deal with the problems of all of us here in a way. But tonight, before we do anything else, we would like to salute the Chutzpah Act of the Week. Uh, we would uh, please like to salute this. you got your little machine ready in there. I will give you the cue. And don't give it to me until I need the cue, right? Okay. A... Uh, Woodstown, wherever that is, a Woodstown woman who claimed she had a, and we quote, I had a dream from God telling her how to save money, <laughs> how to save people's money on their income tax returns, yesterday pleaded guilty in federal court to charge of preparing phony tax returns for her clients. She said she had a dream from God telling her to do that, and uh, she uh, was particularly nailed for... Uh, playing a little bit of hanky-panky there with the deductions. She boosted all the deductions in order to reduce the amount of tax owed. And she said she did this because, uh, well, she got this voice from above that told her that that's what she should do. And somehow, I kind of like that. That's the grand concept of hanky-panky, you know? And uh, uh, immediately when I read this piece, I thought to myself, you know, I, I can't help but thinking in dramatic terms. And so I can imagine her. See, she's quietly snoozing away in her scene. She's, she goes to bed. And she's asleep. And uh, all of a sudden, she hears this voice. This, this is, is God. God. Listen well to me. I am speaking to you from heaven. You are getting a direct command from central headquarters. Namely, me. 
I am God. You are hereby ordered. Taoist will proceed in the following manner. On Charles W. Gutstop's IRS return, you will add seven and three-tenths percent extra on the religious and charity deductions. You will also boost his deductions for business expenses incurred in taking various gentlemen to lunch in Eastside French restaurants. But in particular, please add a minimum of 7.5% to his religious contribution deductions. I have spoken. This is God. Sing together, gang. Now, come on, let's go. Sing it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's sing it out now. Pick up that kazoo there. <laughs>
the ink. I ain't got enough deductions booze. And help me out of my fix, God. <laughs> God, yeah, I kind of like that lady. Incidentally, uh, in a connection with that, we'd also like to salute another little thing that's kind of nice here. Would you please uh, reset that? Would you please, Bill, while you have time? I hate to interrupt you, but while you're doing that, Bill, I'll lay a couple of little uh, ding-dongs on the waiting public out there. Would you hit the money button there, please, while you're queuing that up? Let's uh, yeah, get both hands going there. Here it comes, right at you. Right the excitement of Grand Prix, the thrill of downshifting on an open road. New York in the spring at the International Auto Show. The latest economy, luxury, family and sports cars from England, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Sweden and Soviet Union, plus select American models. Some making world or American debuts. Dragsters, customs, classics, antiques, beautiful girls, glamorous fashions. The world's most exciting international auto show. New York Coliseum, now through April 15. <laughs> yes, indeed, more. Yes, and if you wish to see another fine a little automobile at the auto show, would you please prepare in the bill with you please my Mazda commercial, please. I'll sit at a stoplight and it turns May I join in on this with my This an engine goes. But the Mazda goes. Song and my rotary engine is a humming along. That rotary power feels good to me. Me and my Mazda in harmony. Piston engine goes. But the Mazda goes. If you're looking for a cause in which to believe and your piston engine has caused you to grieve, don't stick with a car that might go sour. Make your slogan rotary power. Piston engine goes. But the Mazda goes. Yeah, feel powerful, man. Drive my Mazda. Visit one of the 28 Mazda dealers in the greater New York area for a test driving. You like that, don't you? <laughs> you want to do it again? <laughs> We're getting a request here from, uh, from uh, Staten Island. We just received a tremendous number of requests from, uh, from uh, Jersey City. Other cultural centers. So please repeat that Jews Harp Arpeggio. So would you please, this is not to be construed a commercial. It is a demonstration of a Jews Harp Arpeggio in the proper terms. I was sitting at a stoplight, it turned green, a car went by looking really mean. So I stepped on the gas, went by him like a shot. Man, this Mazda sure is hot. Piston engine goes. But the Mazda goes. Let the Mazda go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's kind of nice, isn't it? My God, there just is no substitute for talent. I keep telling them that. 
Don't get me anywhere, but uh, would you please, um, <laughs> would you please give me that? When I give you the, the cue, you know, this one, do it, but not before, okay? Uh, speaking of the uh, God syndrome, we would like to, a little ad here out of one of the Jersey papers. I, I, I love to read ads, you know, out of the Jersey papers, especially on the showbiz page. And uh, here's one that's on the showbiz page. It says, uh, St. Teresa's Mother's Guild, first annual Las Vegas night. Kind of like the connection of Las Vegas and the St. Teresa's Mother's Guild. That's uh, <laughs> kind of a spooky connection. And uh, they're going to have this big thing, see? And uh, it's going to be the big Las Vegas night over there. And uh, I like at the bottom, there's a little added attraction. You don't just come there, you know, lose your shirt playing the wheel. Uh, they've got other things, kind of great. Uh, added attraction, horse racing films every one half hour. Well, that's a very interesting juxtaposition, you know, religion and hanky-panky at the track. And uh, I can see God, you know, appearing on this one. Coming down, he says, This, this is God. God. I am, I am speaking, speaking to the St. Teresa's, Teresa's Mother's Mother Guild. Guild. This is this God. I am directing Dallas in all great wisdom and concern for man's eternal verities and the eventual oblivion to which we are all headed. Place $2 on number 7 in the fourth race for me. A horse is running under the name of St. Peter's. Please place $2 on that race for me immediately. This is God. This is God, and I say, bingo! Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is WOR New York. Yes, sir. The ding-dong spot on your dial. And uh, we've got a lot of things here. You, you, you see, of course, uh, what we're dealing with here is uh, is something that uh, Schopenhauer talked about many times. You know, he got to be such a drag about this. Uh, Schopenhauer and his buddy Nietzsche, they, they, uh, they constantly hashed over the same ground. And uh, what they were trying to say in many different ways, it got to be a drag after a while, is that uh, good and evil exist so closely together that it's almost impossible, unless you're Schopenhauer or Nietzsche, to tell them apart. And uh, so this, uh, you know, caused them to write endless numbers of very prolix statements about the nature of good and evil, whereas all they needed was an ad out of a Jersey newspaper, what's going to happen Saturday night at the St. Teresa's Mother's Guild. <laughs> Excuse me, madam. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I don't know, you know. What is it? Uh, I don't know, you know. I, I'm making no anti-religious statement. No way. I'm making a pro-bingo statement here. Now, on the other hand, I'm not making an anti-fantan uh, statement or chuckalug statement. Oh, no, no. There ain't no luck when you're playing them slot machines. They pay off at a known rate. You pull that button down there, you ain't got no chance, friend. You ain't got the chance, if you'll excuse me, if I may use my God voice. Thou hast it not. Thou hast it not. A snowball's chance in hell. I have spoken. Not many snowballs make it big in hell. Bum, 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 bum. La-da-da-dee-dee-dee-doo-doo. La-da-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. 
chinny, chew, chew, chinny. You like a good laugh, huh? How about a prune commercial, huh? That's a good laugh. That's a word from the California Prune Advisory Board. Uh, advice on prunes. Say, fella, this your wife's first baby? Yeah. Listen, don't worry. It's easy. My wife's our number five. Here, have a prune. <laughs> <laughs> now look, fella, that's I told you it was a good it. laugh, right? Have another prune. <laughs> laugh is good for the soul. Hey, nurse, this guy's hysterical. <laughs> Mention prunes, and people just naturally break up. <laughs> yes, uh, maybe they still don't know that pound for pound, prunes have more Mention iron, niacin, and vitamin too. B2 than the six <laughs> leading fresh fruits. And eight times the vitamin A of the most popular fresh fruit. Uh, they're even good for your complexion. It's about time people gave another thought to the California prune. The funny fruit that does so much for you. <laughs> hey, fella, look! Hey, guys, ordered prunes again. Have another prune! <laughs> well, prunes are good for your complexion. Yes, have you ever, haven't you ever heard of the prune pack method? Hey, you make this uh, soup out of prunes and you paint it on your face for a while there and then peel it off. That's good for a laugh, too. Incidentally, I'd like to also say, if I may uh, say more about prunes, the prune, uh, I, I one time, I, I'm going to have to be honest with you that the prune is much more than a fruit. They're quite right. Uh, one time I'm squatting in his tent, see, and, yeah, we're, we're, you know, I'm in the Army. I mean, you, you learn a lot in the Army. That's one of the great things about being in the armed forces. You, you learn a lot more about stuff than you ever do in real life, you know. In fact, that's real life. <laughs> the lives that most of us lead are kind of make-believe lives, you know, in our world. And, uh, but in the Army, it, it comes right out. You know, there it is. It's, it comes right out. Like, like for example, one of the great make-believe things in our world, uh, you see, people tend to think that the real world, you know, the world that we live in, our daily world, this is the real world, and the Army is a kind of an artificial situation, when actually, according to Shepard's famous 180-degree phase shift theory of truth uh, syndrome, it's exactly the opposite, that the truth comes out in the army and the truth is very muted in our daily lives. For example, it is a very common thing for our guy to be walking down the hall here, you know, and uh, he's like a, a, the third assistant uh, uh, copy boy uh, in the, uh, you know, in some little obscure department here and he's writing uh, public, uh, public service spots for marine recruiting drives, you know, that kind of stuff. It's very common for him to be walking down the hall, and all of a sudden he runs into, uh, you know, a top executive, maybe even a vice president. How are you, Charlie? Oh, my God. And he says, oh, hello, Wilbur. How are you? And he says, gee whiz, Charlie. Hey, uh, you're putting on a little weight, aren't you? That's uh, <laughs> all right, Wilbur. Your, your acne's doing pretty good, too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, how about uh, having a little uh, sugarless Dr. Pepper with me? <laughs> well, in other words, there's a, a great deal of camaraderie between people of varying ranks in in uh, in the so-called real life, you agree? In spite of the obvious truth that there is no point upon which their lives ever impinge, not really, except that little brief moment at the water cooler, the truth is that the vice president outranks the guy in the copy department by an infinite number of ranks. And with a quick slash at a pen, he could have that guy standing in line at the 42nd Street unemployment office, right? <laughs> but it ain't the other way around. So this is the difference in rank. And so this is a very unreal situation. We're in the Army. There's no doubt. No doubt. Uh, you're walking down the street. And you meet this guy with this little bird on his shoulder. There's no confusion. 
No confusion as to who ranks whom in the situation, especially since you've got this one little hash stripe on you. You know, it's been nine years and you finally swung up the ladder to PFC. And uh, there's no doubt, though, as to who has the eventual sock. Now, this is, uh, this is open and honest. What confuses us in our world of democracy is we pretend there is such a thing. But uh, democracy is, is one of those idle dreams. It cannot exist because under any... You don't think for a minute that uh, Castro is uh, equal in rank to the uh, guy that's whacking away with a machete down there in, the, in the sugar fields, do you? <laughs> no way. But the pretense is always made. I am one of you. I am one of the little peoples, right, seniors? Oh, come on. Those little people don't get much chance to stand up on a balcony and holler into a 5,000-watt PA system. No way. So uh, uh, the, the, uh, that's the problem with, with, uh, with this, this whole, this whole uh, uh, pretense that we go through. So, but the, in the Army, you learn very real things, very real things, very real things. For example, I'm squatting in a tent one day. You want to hear a little Army for real, bit of realism? I'm squatting in a tent one day. Sun is beating down. Been in the same sand patch for, oh, maybe 14, 15, 16 eons. And uh, we know every little hummock of ground around us, squatting in this place. And all we had for a so-called uh, recreation was another tent, which was down at the end of the, for want of a better name, Company Street. Uh, it was a little tent down there. And what they had in this tent was a broken ping-pong table. Broken very badly, because one night one of the sergeants sat in the middle of it and just busted it down. And now that it's a ping pong table, it's got a deep depression in the middle, which aided your backhand fantastically. You get some tremendous spins because both ends of the ping pong table were uphill. It was like batting a ping pong ball against a wall, and it produced some unbelievable ping pong. And so that was our recreation. We also had a machine which once every couple of months would actually give out a Coke. Warm. In fact, it was more than lukewarm. It was often boiling when you got it out because of the heat that banged down on the top of this tent year in and year out. And you'd share your Coke when you get your Coke. You'd share it with the mosquitoes. Uh, but you know, the co mosquitoes love Coke. They, they, uh, yeah, you'd hold it up and they'd fly in there and you'd be drinking down the mosquitoes and the palmetto bugs and all that jazz. So heat rash became a major hobby. Uh, you never thought of heat rash as a hobby, but it is. It, uh, you'd lay there in your bunk and you'd scratch it and you'd watch it form. You'd look at your heat rash. It was slowly crawling up your arm and down your shoulders. And you would imagine, you know, like kids imagine looking up at the clouds that they see Asia or they see a boot or they see a bird flying. Well, you used to see symbolic things in your heat rash, the way it would spread across your... You'd, first, you'd see the Himalayas. If you look close enough, you'd see Chinese hieroglyphics beginning to grow under your armpit. And uh, after you think you're getting a sign from Buddha or something. Then you'd, you'd watch it a little while and you'd hear it popping. You know, your heat rash starts to bubble a little bit and uh, pop and hiss. And uh, you put sulfur, that's a sulfur salve. It was like, a, like, like well, it was like a sort of half-melted uh, oleomargarine. It was kind of yellow. And you put this on there and the heat rash thrived on it. Uh, there was, it was a very rare kind of heat rash we had, which, which was encouraged by sulfur with the Goli. So we would put this on because at that point we could then make actual, our own man-made uh, forms on our arms. So you put sulfur on a place where you didn't have heat rash, within five minutes you got heat rash there because it would draw the heat rash. 
And so you'd write your name in sulfa, sulfa salve, like underneath your arm where you were, for the, the only place in your body where you didn't have heat rash, you'd write your name, you know, like uh, Aki, you'd write on there. And you'd hold it up like that in the sun, and you'd start sweating around it, and you could actually see the heat rash forming under the under the stripes that you had written there with the sulfa salve, see? And then you'd wipe it off, the sulfa, and now you've got in beautiful, beautifully delineated heat rash, Aki, your name is written. Our uh, medical officer loved that. He, we, we'd go down and, and we used to have competitions who could make the most erotic symbols in his heat rash. And, uh, yeah, guys, you know, it was like tattooing. And so that was part of the, part of the reality of our life. We realized that there's some things man cannot beat. You do not get this feeling in civilian life. In civilian life, it is believed that because something is not defeated, they are lousing up. It is believed firmly that the doctors are covering up by millions of people. Ah, they could cure the common cold if they want to, but I'll tell you why. There's uh, millions of dollars in the common cold. How much money do you think that uh, the, the cough drop guys make on colds, huh? <laughs> oh, they're paying off the doctors. How much do you think that the, that the guys that make these uh, napkins, you know, like Kleenex, and you blow your nose, what happens? Uh, you think if they did away with a cold, you think that uh, they'd sell any of that stuff? Nah. <laughs> oh, come on, you know. What about the guys that make the nose drops? Let me tell you this. There's the biggest industry in America. The biggest industry today is the cold industry. It's bigger than the automobile industry. And you don't think for one minute that they want to see the cold cure, do you? Listen, there's one guy, one doctor. I know this for a fact. There's a doctor one time who was working in a hospital in a city outside of Cleveland, Ohio, who invented the cold remedy. I know this because my wife's sister once met a girl who was a nurse at that hospital. He invented this, and he disappeared. Let me tell you this. They weren't going to let that out. <laughs> they bought him off. Probably had a guy moited. You know, you ain't going to kid me about that. Huh. All right. This is a belief that is common in, uh, in civilian life that they're covering up. Because civilian life seems to give you the, the, uh, the illusion that anything can be defeated if they decide to do it. Or if they would let the cure out. Why, what are you talking about, Shepard? Are you blowing your, are you blowing smoke again? Everybody knows that if they wanted to make a tire that would last for the, the life of the car, they could do it. Why, everybody knows that. Everybody. Everybody knows that they could make a battery that would last as long as the car. Everybody knows that, uh, that uh, if they wanted to, why, I, listen, I want to tell you this. My cousin Clifford one time met a guy outside of Hegwish, Illinois, that knew a guy once who invented a pill. All you're going to do is put the pill in your gas tank, and it changes water to gas. You can get 200 miles to the gallon of water. <laughs> you think they let that out? Standard oil shell? You kidding? Oh. All right. This, uh, this is, these are all common myths. They're as mythical as the dragon was in the Middle Ages. And I want to tell you, the average guy in the Middle Ages believed these things strongly, the so-called Dark Ages. You meet the average yokel, the average serf, walking around out in the woods outside of Sherwood Forest, the year 823, and you say to him, uh, excuse me, Wamba, uh, what's the story about dragons? Oh, what, what, what sayest thou? Are you, uh, are, you, are you attempting to foist upon me the uh, inconclusive belief that there are Noah's dragons? I have seen this with my own eyes. A man who once, outside of Yorkshire, observed a dragon that was blowing smoke, and in fact fire was coming from his nostrils. Sir, prepare to defend thyself. Well, you know, he's not going to buy the fact that there's no dragons. There's just a few turtles walking around. 
You see, he, he, uh, the dragon myth was, was promulgated also because the knight riding out, you know, the knight was in pretty good shape. After all, he was a nobleman. And it, you, you, you understand that the average knight was not just a, just a walking around cluck. He was a nobleman. And so when a knight went out for a, a quest uh, to, you know, to, to prove that the, he could make it big with uh, Lady Margarine or wherever it was that he was trying to make it big in the castle, when he went out with this, you know, with this quest thing going, you don't think that he's going to come back after two weeks out in the boondocks and ride up the ride up the moat there, and they lay down the they lay down the the change, you know. Down comes the drawbridge, and he comes clip clop clip clopping in in his charger, and uh, and uh, Lady Marjorie runs up. Oh, oh, sir, 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 Goomba, thou hast rescued me once again. You don't think he's going to say, ah, oh, but thou hast are wrong. Nothing is out there except a few small turtles. Uh, there is no problem out there. In fact, uh, the only problem I had one time, my armor started to get rusty, and I had to do a little bit of repair work, especially on my halberd here. But I am back now, and let's go up to the to the castle keep, and uh, we'll talk about... Uh, uh, no way. He had to come back with the story. And so he came back after carefully battering his armor around, you know, with clubs and stuff, and the pouring a little turtle blood on his helmet. He came back and says, I have slayest Falstaff! I have slayest Fafner, the great dragon, the dragon which is layeth in wait for all the untouched maidens of the realm. I have slayest him at long last. And now I, Sir Gawain, I am here to take my just rewards. I am here to suffer from my wounds and to... Uh, yeah, come on. This is, this is all part of you play the game and I'll play the game. And if you play the game, everything's going to work out groovy. But if you start screwing around with a game, I'm going to start doing it too, and the next thing you know, it all falls down. So we have to play the game, right? <laughs> have to pretend. It's very important in in, uh, in civilian life is pretending. And uh, but in the army, they, nobody pretends. Uh, they they're not going to pretend that you're lo you're enjoying this lecture on the uh, M14 gas-operated semi-automatic weapon, or weapon as it's almost often pronounced in the army. You do not pretend. You do it. That's all. <laughs> you do it. <laughs> no pretense. So the, I'm squatting in the tent there, playing around, you know, just looking down into the into this. We had these uh, duck boards on the bottom of our tent, and there were little cracks in the duck boards, and I could look down there and watch the water moccasins as they're struggling on their way to the swamp. Even the water moccasins are having heat rash trouble, and uh, I'd watch the water moccasins go by under the under the tent. I'm sitting there. And in comes Edwards, my buddy, who has been in the same tent with me along with four other guys now for God knows how long. We can't even remember the first day we came there. And uh, it looks like it's going to stretch to infinity. And I'm squatting on the edge of my bunk. Edwards comes in and sits down on the footlocker. And he's got a funny look on his face. So what's, what's eating you, Edwards? Nothing. I said, well, what's, what's with the look on her face? Let's go down to the mess hall. And ask for Ernie. I see, you mean Ernie from the motor pool? The very one. Ask for Ernie. And tell him you want some prunes. You didn't think I was going to get back to the prune story, did you? <laughs> You see how I toy with you? Just go 
Don't, and ask for Ernie and ask him for some prunes. He'll know what you're talking about. I says, prunes? I should go down to the mess hall in 400-degree sun when I'm off for another 45 minutes and I don't have to sit and watch that damn radar set? I should walk down to the mess hall and ask for prunes? Yeah, go ask for prunes. Well, something in the way he sent it. He was sending another message, which really says, go ask for prunes. So I got up, put on my shoes, which was the only other item of apparel I had outside of my dog tags, and walked down the company street in the boiling sun with my heat wrench carrying on like a Greek chorus around me. I arrived down at the back end of the mess hall. I did not go in the front end, because if you go in the front end, you're allowed to get nabbed for a detail. I went around the back end of the mess hall, and I look in through the screen door, and I see Ernie in there, Ernie from the motor pool. He also drove our weapons carrier. Ernie was our driver. He drove the weapons carrier. He drove our two Jeeps. We, our company was so low in the Army Table of Organization. Have you ever seen the Table of Organization, the T.O.? It's like a big chart with little blocks. You know, at the top of it, it says, uh, Supreme Commander. It's a big block. It has stars on it. That's the President. And then underneath it, it says, uh, Chief of Staff. That's another big block. That's got a bunch of stars on it, too. That's the head, <laughs> you know, that's the head guy. And then the little branches go out. See, all the way down. These branches keep going out to things like uh, uh, area commander. That means the guy that's in charge of all the troops in Africa. Or the guy that's in charge of all the troops in America or some damn place. See. And then at the little more blocks. It says uh, corps commander. More stars. And then attached to him, it says uh, all kinds of little branches go out. It says uh, division commanders. And all over these. Yeah, more stars. Well, these things keep going down and down and down until finally way down at the bottom are little little tiny blocks. It's a company. <laughs> way down at the bottom. Well, our, our, our company was so far down on the, on the table of organization with those little blocks that we were probably one of three companies in the entire U.S. Armed Forces that did not get new equipment. We were issued surplus equipment. We would get used Jeeps. <laughs> from other other official companies. See, so here we are. Uh, you know, that was that kind of a scene. So I walk in to the mess hall. And Ernie is is standing over near the bread bin. Now, for those of you who've never been in an army mess hall, you may not know that bread is uh is carried is carried in a great big kind of a it's like a it goes all the way to the ceiling. It's a big cabinet. But it's covered entirely with, with wire mesh, which opens up. In that wire mesh, there's all kinds of shelves, and there's bread in there, see? So Ernie is standing around back by the bread. So I said, uh, hey, Ernie, I felt like silly. You know, nobody asks for prunes. You don't, you don't, you know. I said, hey, Ernie. He said, yeah, what do you want? Ernie was a very disappointed man. I might point out that every man has his own story. But Ernie had been euchred badly. He saw a, a, uh, he saw a movie once when he was 16 about Air Corps cadets, you know, about Air Force cadets on learning how to fly. This uh, 
all these great airplanes and all that. And, and the minute he reached 18, he went down and joined the Air Force. You want to be a cadet? Well, three and a half months later, they discovered that Ernie's depth perception uh, left much to be desired. They should have known that. He kept bumping into walls and all that kind of stuff. But by that time, Ernie was locked up, sealed, and delivered. And that uh, they transferred him to our company. But in his soul, he was always flying planes in echelon formation. He was always mounting higher and higher into the clouds. And that ain't easy to make a transition from flying uh, fighter aircraft to driving a used Jeep. But he always used to pretend it was. So Ernie's sitting there all the time in a Jeep with his hat all pulled down, crushed-looking hat. He looked, and he would, he would sit at the wheel like, you know, like he's uh, going through a checklist. You know, check your flaps, check your trim. <laughs> you know. uh, so Ernie was a man with a secret sorrow. And it, of course, naturally uh, fell upon Ernie that men with secret sorrows often become fantastically creative. There is, uh, there is much evidence to prove that, that the rejection in the early life of Einstein uh, produced the great uh, physical concepts that he finally came up with. There's a lot of evidence of this. That uh, uh, Edison, he got booted around when he was a kid. He wound up uh, designing, you know, all this stuff. Uh, it's it's uh, it's kind of like getting back at the world. I'll show them. I'll invent the light bulb. You know, let them, and then they'll have some bills to pay. Why? If they think it's bad paying for kerosene for kerosene lamps, wait till Con Ed gets them. <laughs> I'll invent Con Ed. Well, this is a this is a fascinating problem. So Ernie, it's it was obvious that Ernie would 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 do this. He was a man with a very secret sorrow, very very talked. He didn't talk much to guys, and uh, he was kind of a kind of an introverted guy and the, he, he felt the, of course that his uh, his uh, his true calling was missed so I walk in and I said Ernie yeah what do you want before we lay this on you because this was a dramatic moment in my life I discovered a great truth an eternal verity would you please uh, tickle her thing with a Castro spot please please and now Today and tomorrow only, you can save $96 on a Castro full-size convertible. This stunning contemporary style comes in a most fashionable fabric and converts to a most comfortable bed for two, featuring Castro's patented feather lift mechanism. So easy to open, even a child can do it. At any other time, you'd pay $295. But now, for today and tomorrow, the price is only $199. That's a spectacular super savings of $96. Once again, Castro offers an outstanding value on a full-size convertible. When you buy a Castro convertible, you are buying the finest convertible sofa at the lowest possible price because Castro manufactures in its own six plants and sells direct to you in its own 70 showrooms. So when you have the opportunity to save $96 on a Castro convertible, why hesitate? Hurry to your nearest Castro showroom now. Remember, this offer is available for today and tomorrow only. Yeah, he's a very loud man. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I might as well tell you the truth about, uh, you know, this commercial we had before about the prunes. is not kidding. The prune is more than the fruit. I discovered this on this particular day, and it's an eternal verity, which I have never, never forgotten. No, it's not what you think. No, no. No, no. Again, you're making... That mistake that the layman makes. He grabs hurriedly at the obvious. <laughs> That's right. 
And if there's anything Shepherd ain't, it's obvious. That's right. And either is truth. And that's the sneaky thing. Truth is not. The obvious things about this uh, interesting fruit, we all know. Matter of fact, I met a kid the other day that won the X-Lax eating contest at his university. And to show them that he was a true champion, after all the guys who were eating the X-Lax, they said they heard on my show. You remember the, the show I did about eating the X-Lax? Once when I was in the college, we had an X-Lax eating contest in the, in the, in the, in the, in the dormitory. And, and uh, that's an exciting contest because, uh, let's put it this way, the conclusion comes swiftly and with great drama. Uh, and uh, so this kid uh, in this school, which I will not name, not only defeated all of his fellow classmates, at least his, his fellow dorm mates in this X-Lax eating contest, to show them he was a true champion after he had eaten this box of X-Lax and all the others had fallen by the wayside, running like mad, I might add. They didn't really fall by the wayside. They ran out of the room running like hell. Uh, towards, uh, you know, <laughs> he said uh, he, he finished it up to show them he was a true champion by eating, after his uh, conclusion with the X-Lax, he ate an entire pound of prunes just to show him that he was not a fluke. It's just like, you know, George Foreman to prove that, uh, yeah, you know, it's like George Foreman, the heavyweight champion, to prove that uh, beating uh, Fraser was not a fluke. He took on Fraser and Muhammad Ali the same night, just showed him. You know, you got to wash that down with a little beer, please. Hey, guess who was in here yesterday? Half a while a cop. Yeah, he always up a Valentine and says, Connor, I come in to say goodbye. So I say, how come? Well, it seems Heffelmeyer is walking his beat when he runs into this guy pulling a cart loaded with 23 cases of Valentine beer. So he asks the guy what he's doing with that much Valentine. And the guy tells him, Officer, I just love that beer so much. When I find it on sale, I buy it all up. Well, Heffelmeyer, he's still suspicious. So he says, Okay, if you love Valentine that much, what do the three rings stand for? And the guy says, that's easy. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, well, that does it. And sure enough, they find out the beer's been swiped from O'Hara's delicatessen. And on account of what he's done, Heffelmeyer gets promoted to lieutenant, which is why he won't be walking a beat around here anymore. Some world, huh? Hey, let me get you another Valentine. On the house. Uh, yes, Ballantine Bach beer is now available. Falstaff Brewing Corporation, St. Louis, Missouri, and other great cities. <laughs> well, I'll have to lay the truth on you about the Ernie and the uh, and the prunes. I said, Ernie, I'm here for prunes. He says, that will be $2. I said, $2 for prunes? Are you out of your mind? He said, you want them or not? Well, something in Ernie's tone said, I better buy them. So I, you know, I scrabble around. I come back with a two bucks. I hand the two bucks to Ernie. And Ernie says, don't say nothing about it. Keep your mouth shut. Here you are. And he hands me a fruit jar. Listen carefully, Bill. You're missing the point of the story. He hands me a fruit jar. I said, what's this? If you want it prunes, you got him. He says, stick it under your field jacket, for God's sakes, before Lieutenant Cherry sees it. I says, okay, Ernie. And I sneak back to my tent with the prunes. Well, I, I, I look at it in the light. We had this little light bulb in the tent. I look up there, and it's a cloudy, brownish liquid. 
I take the top off the fruit jar, and I want to tell you, as I got it unscrewed, the top of the fruit jar just flew right off and banged against the ceiling of the tent. There was that much pressure going. I immediately knew that these were not ordinary prunes. Three and a half hours later, I'm back down at the mess hall, standing next to the bread counter there, asking for more prunes. It was that day that I discovered that Ernie, in his creative drive and the motives which had caused him to be the most unhappy jeep driver in the entire U.S. Armed Forces, had designed an unbelievable drink, which one makes by putting prunes into a jar, leaving them in the sun a certain length of time with a couple of pieces of lemon peeling and the proper application of a little sugar here and there, you come up with something, friend, that will really make you giggle like that prune spot. Oh, nobody knew about it except our little crowd in Company B. Lieutenant Sherry couldn't figure out why everybody went about their work for months, singing at their work. And it was an unbelievable demand for prunes. People would give up uh, chip beef, SOS, all those other army delicacies to get at the prunes, which everyone would quietly take back in his mess kit, back to the tent. Because, like all great inventions, immediately became public uh, public domain. Ernie only had, for about two weeks, the he had the charter locally. <laughs> this is WOR New York. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.